Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Fuck him. Fuck him. I, I miss having you in studio. There's so much to go on, and there's so much malfeasance and rank fuckery to tear down. Those are $5 words you threw out there. Oh, that. malfeasance and rank fuckery are terms that are coming into my lips constantly these days, every time I watch the news. Here's the deal. You're, uh, you're hotter than ever on social media, my friend. Um, and I'm so proud to know you and be your friend. And, um, and you're fighting the good fight, as we all must do right now, because we are under siege. You are really kind. I'm going to have you say that to my agent, and maybe that'll lead to something. Uh, thank you. You know, it's, it's, it's actually a pleasure because I get to do a lot of things on social media I can't do, and you're one of the people who inspires me. And I'll get to this once I begin our intro. We've already begun the interview, but I, I have to do this really long, flowery intro of you, Ron. I apologize in advance for that. But uh, I want to talk about your outspokenness because you are one of the few artists of your stature who actually uses the capital of fame for morality and causes you care about. And I, your way of not giving a fuck to me is profoundly moral because you take that <laughs> capital and you use it to fight for those who have less. But that'll, that, that's going to be an obsequious question that comes later on in this thing. Uh, here's going to be the official beginning. Let me know how my intro goes, Ron. The Last Victim is a new neo-Western survival thriller set in rural Americana in which an aging sheriff is pursuing a murderous gang of outlaws who are pursuing a witness to murder played by Ali Larder. Now, this movie's deeply psychological, and I gotta say, it's gorgeously shot. It is the feature debut of director Naveen Chathapuram, who uh, landed the great Ron Perlman for the role of Sheriff Hickey. Ron Perlman being the Golden Globe winner who has become one of our greatest character actors. Whether this man is playing a biker in Sons of Anarchy, a caveman in Quest for Fire, a black market organ trader in Pacific Rim, we've all been there. Whether he's playing a half-demon summoned to Earth by Nazis in a little indie film called Hellboy, a Jewish mobster in Drive, a monk in the name of the Rose. This gentleman just had two films up for Best Picture in the same year. Nightmare Alley and Don't Look Up. And most importantly, he is still the official righteous bad motherfucker of Twitter. What a pleasure to welcome Ron Perlman back to the show. Hello, sir. Well, I will never live up to all of the beautiful things you just said, but I appreciate the effort. Big time. How does it feel at this point to have interviews like this and when you hear the people interviewing you run through the list of credits and talk i mean i didn't even get to a tenth of your credits there how does it feel to hear the ones that pop up again and the ones that people care about well i gotta admit i'm i'm uh, it took me a long time to um kind of have a, a decent perspective on things you know um i had a rather dysmorphic uh view of myself and how I fit into the world, which I think is what, what acted as the springboard to me wanting to become an, an actor. I think probably north of 75% of the people who are actors do so because they're essentially uncomfortable in their own skin when they, when they discover that they can inhabit someone else's skin, someone they can make up and make as perfect as they want to. Then they, they, they hit this kind of drug-like um, aphrodisia-like uh, sensation that yep. they can't find in real life. And they look for it over and over and over again. So it's one role after another role after another role. 
then you get to the point where you become more comfortable with yourself and you either don't no longer need to be an actor or you be an actor for reasons different from how it started out. I'm finally coming to terms with that now. So, I mean, for me, being an actor has taken on a completely different patina than it did when I, when I first started out. It was, it was almost like a therapy before. Yeah. Now it's become something that I value as a member of the world community, as I've come to find out that there are very few precious, precious things in life that can contribute to the greater good, chief among them being storytelling, because storytelling is um, the thing that is the most inclusive and the most community oriented, because when you're doing it correctly, you're hitting upon experiences and values and emotions that affect everybody from all seven continents, rich, poor, you know, privileged, unprivileged. And so that there's a, a nobility to the endeavor that I didn't realize existed when I was a younger man, when I was doing it for more self-indulgent reasons. So to hear you kind of describe me, I'm able, I'm able to objectify that and, I, and I'm, I'm filled with pride, actually. I'm filled with pride that I'm still doing it. Uh, I'm loving it more now than ever before. And that I understand its value in a way that makes me fight for it as much as I want to fight for all of the other things that I find can make the world a better place and can make us kind of more in touch with our better angels. You, you make me think of people like, Gene Hackman or Nicholson, who apparently have really just walked away. They just didn't need to do it anymore, and they didn't need to go out with a big final film. They just decided that they had reached it. They had nothing left to prove. But in your case, you know, I agree that for many, it is therapy, or we can't afford the therapy. And we get that sense of belonging or that sense of passion or what my mother, the nun, called the presence of the Holy Spirit. My mother thought that actors and real artists have a ministry. I know in your case that you were a, a heavier child, but I also know your dad was incredibly encouraging, was he not? Uh, there was nothing wrong with me in the eyes of my dad. He, he uh, only saw the positivity in me, and there was nothing but encouragement and the feeling of complete safety when I was around him, or even not around him, just the fact that he was somewhere in the universe. Um, I lost him when I was 19, so I had to completely make him up after that and, you know, keep him with me in ways that were something other than, you know, um, of this of this ilk of this world. So he, he became my virtual spirit guide and um, the one who I always looked to when I was unsure of my values. And then there's a story that I've told many times before. I'll try to make it brief because it's not particularly original, but that is that he came to see me in a play in college and then came back the next night by himself. And he wasn't supposed to be there. And I saw him there. And I said, Dad, I'm going out with my friends. What are you doing here? He goes, no, no, no. I just, I'm not here to hang out with you. Go have a good time with your friends. I'll see you. I'll see you at home later. I just wanted to check something out. And then the next day we were in the car together. And I said, what was that? what was that thing last night? He goes, well, I saw something the night before and uh, I, I wouldn't let my eyes believe what I saw. So I needed to come back and see it again. But this thing that you do when you're on stage, you need to keep doing it because this is your thing. And that, a year and a half later, he was gone. So it was almost like a deathbed instruction that I remain an actor, that I had found my calling and that, I was getting permission and guidance from the person on the planet that meant the most to me. So there was never any looking back after that. That was a Guys and Dolls production, right? Exactly. I guess you have heard me tell that story, I've heard the story I'm but sorry, I, man. No, no. Sorry, I, mean, I, I, I No, no, because I lost my dad and, and it, it resonates with me. And I, I wonder if, I mean, that sounds like the kind of story that probably made even more sense to you when you became a father? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, um, 
No, I mean, you, you, you know, you, you hopefully go through this life and learn the best lessons from the best people. And then say, these are the things, if I ever get my own shot at doing this, that I implement so much of the dad that I was, was based on what, you know, all of the warmth and positive memories I had from my relationship with him. And I tried to just recreate that to the extent that I could with my kids. Ron, you're, you're, I know your, your big roles always get a lot of hype, but I've always wanted to watch you ever since quest for fire and in any project that you choose, because I find the films you choose very interesting. I loved your work in hand of God. I, I loved your work in Asher and you signed on here to work with a, a first time director for this new film. And I'm curious, what does it take for you to get you to say yes to a script and commit to that time? Well, it's basically always starts with the writing. You know, if, if I'm reading something and I don't know what's going to come on the next page, you know, for lack of a better word, it's a page turner and it's a world that I, I've never seen before or I have seen, but I've never seen quite this way before. And it's handled with intelligence and sophistication and nuance and multidimensionality. I am very, very, the next thing I do is look at the role that they're asking me to consider. And if I like the guy, if I want to spend time with the guy, if I feel like I can be effective playing the guy, then we go and try to make the deal. The thing about first time filmmakers is my first ever first time filmmaker was a fellow, which I don't even know what happened to him, but his name was Guillermo del Toro. He was this, this kid from Guadalajara, Mexico. And Boy, I wish I wish I wish him the best. Yeah, he crazy kid with a dream. Yeah, a little little Mexican kid with a dream. But this was the experience that changed the entire direction of my life. Was you know being there to watch the emergence of a guy who's never done it before and who is now going to you know contribute to a new trajectory in filmmaking. That's Guillermo del Toro did. So I've been kind of favoring the first time filmmaker ever since, because I feel like, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a lucky charm. And I feel like if I get the worst thing can happen is I'm wrong and the picture stinks and the guy has no talent, but that doesn't usually happen. In, in the case of this fellow, Naveen, who you pronounced his last name better than I ever could, just based on the fact that he wrote the script and that his observations about humanity and, and character and, and storytelling were as sophisticated as they were. I, I figured, you know, he can't stray very far in terms of putting it on the screen. Right. So I jumped in and um, now having seen the film, I was right. You know, it's a beautiful film to look at. It's effective. It does exactly what it sets out to do. And um, I'm proud to be in it. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I'm John Fugel saying this is Progress After Dark. I, I was watching the film and I was thinking about other roles of yours and, and it occurred to me watching this movie that there's really, there's two kinds of strong men. There's the abusive bullies who prey on the vulnerable and the protectors who look out for the vulnerable. And you've played a lot of both in your career. 
And I'm curious what the very disparate kinds of characters you've played have helped you come to understand about what it is to be a man and the kind of man that you want to be, because I think it relates directly to your politics and your outspokenness as well. We were very, very poor, lower middle class family. We lived in a two bedroom apartment, the four of us. It was always a rental. Nobody ever owned anything in the Perlman family until I bought my first house after my first TV series. I didn't know how to buy a house. I wasn't wired to buy a house. I, you know, I got completely screwed with it. But I come from a, a long line of, of, of renters who never had a pot to piss in. And um, the thing that was always kind of the cornerstone of uh, the philosophy around my house was justice and the lack thereof, how the little guy is always getting fucked. I could say that on your show, right? Yes, yeah, it's, it's encouraged, yes. Yes. And it's encouraged? Yes, it's encouraged. You hear? Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, great, because I came to the right place. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, in thinking about, like, because I, I really, I talked to you about this when I was on your show the last time, that I have a, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about this whole Twitter thing. Sometimes you feel like you're doing it. You, 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 you want to feel like you're doing it for reasons other than self-aggrandizement, uh, shining a spotlight on how clever you are, shining a spotlight on, on, you know, creating enough drama around you that people become more interested. Or you're just basically doing it because you're trying to raise your voice in service of uh, an injustice, and in service of people who don't have a voice or don't have the following that you have. So I'm always struggling with that. Really? Because I, I see it as it's all self-promotion. But what is it that we're promoting? Right. Everyone's there to promote themselves. But some of us do it to promote the causes of the less fortunate. Some of us do it to justify cruelty. And some of us do it to show off what we had for lunch. I mean, if everyone's there for the same reason to say, dig me, it's what you do with that, I think, that that matters. And it's why I think that what you do with it makes it so important. Yeah, I love you, John, but I don't know if I agree with you. Um, Right on. Because there's there's a lot of motivations for uh, and and the cross section of people that I follow, some of the great minds and, and writers and journalists and and artists and activists. You know, they're the springboard for their desire to make a statement at any particular given time and place and put it onto Twitter is very different from a lot of people who basically have never had a voice that mattered. And now all of a sudden they have a platform and they're willing to say anything for attention. Yeah. Those are two very different impulses. And um, so that's what I'm struggling with. Which one am I? So, you know, in, in the midst of that dialectic, you, you try very hard to make sure that what it is you're doing is something that you absolutely have to completely have to say. Yeah. Because you're, you're, you're looking at a world that has completely turned itself upside down. You're looking at a situation that is um, almost unfathomable. And yet it's it's holding sway over the entire country and the entire world, etc. So there you have it. I get what you're saying. I got to say, though, that one of my favorite new film genres has been the single shot Ron Perlman video he posts on Twitter telling off whatever fevered political empty suit ego he's got to tell off. Because, again, celebrity might be the dumbest thing we've ever invented as a species. So to have that capital and to use it to call out these frauds and charlatans and fascists the way you do, I consider to be both moral and to be deeply entertaining, if you can do it. I mean, that's why, to me, I, I got to do it in joke form for, for, you know, I mean, I do political stand-up, and, and, and it, for me, I've got to try to mm-hmm. make it entertaining. I don't want it to just be someone up there pontificating and ranting. And what you do is so entertaining. And the fact that, you know, you're using this fame to get there, to me, it reminds me of a lot of your characters. It's, you know, using the strength to fight for the little guy. That's that's your character from City of Lost Children. That's your character from Nightmare Alley, to bring it back to Del Toro, because the the love you have for this girl, and, and you promised her father that you would protect her. I see the same kind of 
ethic in the causes you fight for that I see in some of your characters. It's a, it's a mm. purposing of strength for good rather than for cruelty. Well, yeah, I mean, and uh, there's, uh, I mean, what you're seeing on social media, the, the, the rift between the two ways of thinking, and they're really there, there are there are many other ways than two, but the two being, you know, the blue state way of thinking and the red state way of thinking. Yeah. And the red state way of thinking is encompassing things that remind me now more of Sharia law and of ISIS yeah. than they do of, uh, you know, the, the founding father's vision of, uh, you know, uh, a representative society where we are all grateful for our freedoms and liberties and willing to fight for them and fight against fascism and injustice around the world and fight for those who are so obsessed with power that human rights become something you would squash on your, under your feet, like a, like a, an anthill. Yeah. Um, so we have that living and, and, and thriving in the United States of America right now to the point where, and the discussion is not hyperbole. You know, we are one election away from losing our democracy. We just had a court ruling where we we inched another few, not inched, but, you know, miles closer toward authoritarian society with this Roe versus Wade bullshit that's happening. These three fucking assholes who lied in front of Congress to get their jobs. First Thank thing you. they do is they do exactly what they said they weren't going to do. Exactly. And, you know, I just personally want to say, sorry, you're fired now. You, you perjured yourself in front of Congress in order to get a job. You're fired. You're off the court. And next, that's what I want to do. That's what we all want to do. All of yeah. us who are fighting for human rights, which is a woman gets to choose what she does with her life, what she does with her body. And really not just a woman, but men and women who find themselves in a situation where they cannot afford or they know that they will be horrible parents or they know that they're going to give the kid away or they know that this kid is going to have a, a ridiculously, you know, impossible life completely born behind the eight ball. You have exactly. to give those people a chance to, to do something about that. And that's just the way it is. If you look at it any other way, you're, 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 you're looking to live in a theocracy, not a democracy. Yeah, well, and that's the playing field I fight on because you can't use Christianity to justify putting women in cages for terminating pregnancies. If you go through the New Testament, it's not something that the Bible's against and Jesus' religion wasn't against it. And what I keep coming back to is, and I want to get back to, to craft in a second, but it's hurting poor people. Rich women in these red states will still be able to see doctors. It's going to be poor women who can't leave the state to go and have a procedure done that are going to be hurt the most. And it's going to be these same red states that are going to see the hardest economic toll by having greater poverty and by having more businesses not want to move their business to these states because they have young female employees and they're turned off by the law. It's literally something that they've done. It's a racket they've run for 42 years on conservative white people. And in the long run, it's only going to hurt the conservative white people they're doing it for. That's what makes me crazy. And it's just pretentious and it's it's un-American. And um, we stray. We've you know, it's just another example of us willing to stray from the things that truly make us exceptional. Yeah. You can't use the word except American exceptionalism anymore. Now that we've had four years of authoritarian dictatorship, somebody who is willing to have a coup d'etat against the state in order to retain power. That's just fucking, you should see shit like that in, in banana republics. Right. On. And now we see it here in the United States. And the, the, the fucked up thing, John, is that the people who are living in these other states do not know the difference. And they're the first exactly. ones to talk to you about God and yep. church. And they're yep. the first ones to talk to you about patriotism. And they can't find their ass with both hands. They have yep. no idea what we fought for in World War II. They have Correct. no idea what we fought for in Serbia. And, and, you know, Correct. They have Correct. no idea that we, we stand for something other than ethnic cleansing. These guys would cleanse ethnicity, and they're doing it with their yeah. voting laws and their just dismantling of the Civil Rights Act and telling everybody you can only hold power if you're white. You can only vote if you're white. 
If you yep. vote for anything other than that, we'll overturn your vote. It doesn't matter anymore. There's yep. nothing more anti-democratic <laughs> than that. Thank you. That's what it, when they say original intent constitution, it's like, oh, original intent. So only rich white males get to vote and have a say. That's what I hear when I hear original intent. I got I got to bring it back to, to cinema for a second while I still have you, though, because I, I do want to talk about a couple of collaborations you've had in the past. Uh, it was so much fun in Nightmare Alley, which I loved. And I, I, I loved Don't Look Up. And I loved your fuck you to people who were shitting on that movie. Uh, it was a, such a smart political an actual satire, which I think a lot of Americans aren't used to really seeing. But in Nightmare Alley, it meant so much to watch you in a film with Willem Dafoe because I kept thinking, these are two of the finest character actors this country has produced because we never catch either one of you acting. It's always listening. Mm -hmm. It's always knowing what the character is and responding in the moment. And that made me realize how much I've always been a fan of uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau, the remake with Brando and you, um, the film might have had its problems, but it's hugely entertaining. Brando is so watchable in it. And I was wondering what that experience was like for you, that you actually got to work with him on a film where, say what you want about it, Brando fucking goes for it in that role. Well, he always went for it, you know, and, and, and he's, he's the perfect example of failing big. Yeah. Um, and, but also in those moments where he hits it, where he hits that perfect note that resonates perfectly across the universe, uh, which he did on more occasions than almost any other actor, uh, even though they were, they were rare. He is somebody who goes for it. And I really, really like, you know, I mean, I, there's nothing, you don't want to leave anything in the locker room, man. We're in this game. We go around one time and, you know, there's no reason to be safe. There's no reason to make choices that are going to be deliberately uh, uncontroversial. And Brando was the number one. I mean, you know, he was, but again, it it was in service of the material and it was in service of what the writer had intended. Uh, My, my big problem with James Dean was it was pure masturbation. He was just finding a way to distinguish himself as the behaviorist of actors Whereas Brando always played the role that was on the page. And when he was truthful, he was truthful as Terry Malloy. He was truthful as Don Vito Corleone. He was truthful as Stanley Kowalski. He was truthful as those people. He was not James Dean. That was always James Dean, who was like, you know, scratching himself and, and saying, how, look how interesting I am. I I do often wonder, though, if James Dean had had a chance to live longer and make more than three movies, could he have become like a a Montgomery Clift? Could he have gotten to that place? Well, Montgomery Clift and Brando both came to the party fully formed. That's all I can tell you. Yeah, exactly. You know, they never had to learn what what it was they were there to do. Clift was always in service of the character. Brando was always in service of the character. James Dean was always in service of James Dean whether he was yeah. doing working with Ilya Kazan or George Stevens yeah. or, you know, that's the difference between actors and movie stars. And, uh, I got to tell you, I love your work in this film. I can't wait to see del Toro's, uh, Pinocchio, which is coming up. I know you've got a lot of projects in the works. The retirement plan with Nicholas Cage is coming out. So before I let you go, Ron, it's so good to see you. Let me just ask you what's giving you hope these days. Oh, I have, I mean, the majority of the country, is against this bullshit that you and I are identifying. We're talking about the majority of this country understands what democracy is. The problem is with what the people who don't, who have a different agenda, will do for power and how ugly they play and how, how they deal from the bottom of the deck. They, they cheat and they lie and they're willing to do anything to get power. And that has gained uh, enough of a foothold in our society that makes me, makes me disgusted and nauseous. But at the end of the day, I feel like when it comes down to it, and this Roe versus Wade thing might be it, we're going to win. We're going to win. We may lose a couple of rounds, but we're going to win the war. And if we don't, I'll see you on the other side, John. We'll talk about <laughs> it over, uh, you know. Over, uh, you know, we'll roast some marshmallows and put on some Sinatra <laughs> and talk about it over a couple of good cigars and, you know, what a, our drink of choice, you know. I, but I look right now, to... I have faith in mankind. I've met enough 
people who disagree with me politically who are still kind and yep. polite and love their neighbor. And I, I have faith. I have great hope that we're going to get through this. Ron Perlman stars in The Last Victim. It's on demand. It's great to see you. I look forward to seeing you in person in L.A. sometime. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to see you, John. Great. And keep up the good work, my brother. You too. Thanks for inspiring me. Peace. We'll be right back. All right. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One of our media's favorite topics is, of course, the divide between Blue America and Red America and how easily we could lapse back into another civil war. Now, of course, there's a lot of folks really rooting for this, just like there's a lot of folks on the left who would be fine with certain states seceding. How likely is it? I mean, if we had another civil war, it, it wouldn't really look like actual secession of uh, half the states because they want to keep slaves. It would be something profoundly different, possibly horrific and violent, no matter what your political leaning is. Most sane people on any side of political ideology can see that we are moving towards something potentially catastrophic, uh, one way or another. This new book by our next guest, Stephen March, is um, a book that I, I gotta say is truly scary. There is a lot of hope in it, but this is not a book that pussyfoots around. Now, Mr. March is a novelist and a culture writer. You may have read his stuff in The Atlantic, The New York Times, or Esquire. Uh, his books include How Shakespeare Changed Everything, which is fantastic, uh, as well as uh, Hunger of the Wolf, and he lives in Toronto. Uh, which I guess gives him enough of a perspective to have a really keen, <laughs> clear eye on how much we can stand each other here in the divided tribes of America. His new book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. It is a book that contains many possibilities that could spark chaos in our country. And it's a deeply researched work of speculative nonfiction. It's a fascinating book, and I'm already excited for the, the miniseries based on the book. Mr. March, welcome to SiriusXM. Pleasure to be here, John. Thank you so much. I, there's so much you've packed into this, and it's so well-researched. And obviously, there's, there are many different horrifying scenarios you go through that I'd like to walk our listeners through. But let me begin by first asking, how are you? How's your family and loved ones? How are you getting by during these scary, uncertain times? Uh, we're pretty good. I mean, they, 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 they put the kids' schools back on Zoom school in Ontario here, so we're having to like completely reorganize our family lives. But, you know, the thing is, we're getting used to it now. This is like the third time that I've had to do it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're all, we're all just exhausted by the endless decision-making and the endless bother of COVID. Um, yeah. But, you know, I can't complain. I, I can't complain. I like the people I'm stuck with, and I think that's really all you can ask for. <laughs> My brother-in-law lives in Toronto. I know exactly what you're going through. We're looking forward to it here in New York happening again. I, I, I know that when you began writing this book, there was no way you could know how timely its release would be. And we're having this conversation on the virtual eve of the one-year anniversary of the terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. When did you begin mm -hmm. working on it? And, and what specifically motivated you to take this particular potentially horrific project on? Well, um, I was sent by a Canadian magazine to cover the Trump inauguration in Washington, and that had a very uh, fall of Rome feel to it. You know, like that. It, it just had really protesters really close to violence. I mean, you know, at one point I'm standing on a car and then I realize that the car is on fire and I have to get out of there. Then I, you know, 
panic and go and get cigarettes to calm myself down. And everyone I, uh, I was walking with is arrested. And later I find out they're all charged with felonies. And it, it was very chaotic and, and, and it felt very spiraling out of control. And, you know, more or less when I started to look into like, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look into the American darkness here. I'm going to go, I'm going to go talk to the Nazis because I'm very comfortable talking with um, hard right people. And I get along right. quite well with them and uh, they get along quite well with me. And I, 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 I even enjoy their company sometimes. So I, I, I was sure. uh, going around doing this. And after a while, it just became very clear that, um, you know, when, when marriages reached the point that America has reached now, you sit the kids down and say, it's time to talk about splitting up um, because it's just, it's just, the, the the violence and the, the the violent rhetoric was always there, but now it's turning into actual violence, and that's when uh, that's when things tend to spiral out of control. I mean, you in the intro, you address America's immediate future. I, I'm curious before we get actually to the different scenarios. What do you what do you think mm-hmm. in broad strokes the next several years have in store for us here? I think they're going to be extremely difficult, and I think they're going to force a real evaluation of. Uh, the basic institutions of American life. I think thing, the, the, the political questions that have concerned Americans uh, obsessively during the Trump years and even during the Obama years, essentially the horse race politics things, Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter account and so on, like that's going to fall apart. People are going to start to realize like this system is not working. The problem here is not really the people. Um, it's certainly not the American people. The, the problem here is really the systems that are decrepit and are falling apart and, and no longer really can be called democracy. Uh, you know, I mean, I think or rather they're getting that way. So, you know, for example, by 2040, the best estimate is that 30 percent of the country will control 68 percent of the Senate. Correct. Well, you know, that, that, that and, and, you know, it is inevitable. It is genuinely inevitable that a Republican president will be elected whether it's 2024, 2028, or 2032, with many millions of votes less than the Democratic nominee, right? And like, so already, you know, the Supreme Court justices, five out of the nine Supreme Court justices are selected, have been selected by presidents who did not win the the um, popular vote. Correct. And so w- when the abortion dis- decision happens, um, it would be a completely different matter if people felt that the Supreme Court was a legitimate representation of the country's will, but they don't. And and so, you know, the right has always kind of had this suspicion that government, that the American government was not reflective of That's right. uh, popular will. And I, I think what's going to happen is the left is going to catch up. And, there, and, and you know, right now we're, we're still in a place where the left is trying to defend American institutions and preserve American institutions. And and I think I think what's what's going to happen over the next five years is that's no longer going to be possible. Like, it's, it's just not going to be possible to defend these institutions. Right. And so then I mean, you get to big questions. Then you get to large political questions, radical political questions. And the, and hopeful, you know, my hope is that common sense and, and some kind of desire to maintain peaceful transition of power will persevere. But my fear is that it could very easily turn to violence. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not one to believe there'll be a formal secessionist movement, per se, like we saw in the 1860s. But I do think that what we saw a year ago this week, the terrorist attack on the Capitol was in many ways a dress rehearsal. You state the U.S. is riven by a sectarian conflict that cannot help but end at some point in violence. How certain are you? And, yeah. and what makes what makes well, you I so mean, well, I've met a lot of the people who are on the other side and they, you know, they they have the politics of the gun in a very literal sense. Like they yeah. um, they they are armed and they they want a violent revolution. And they not only do they they believe that violence against the government is inherently American, uh, which they get from the revolution, which they get from, you know, from Confederate history in, in some part. But that's actually not really fair like they they that's a certain subset of that movement but it's certainly not the whole of the movement they really regard resistance to the government as patriotism in itself and they regard things like paying property taxes as to be a form of enslavement 
And so when you're in the grips of these kind of messianic forms of freedom, that just tends to lead to violence in a very in a very clear way. I also would say that, you know, January 6th was scattershot. It was not very well organized and it had no leadership. And the next time that none of that will be true. Uh, you know, like the next time there will be a, a much more conscious plan. You walk the reader through five potential scenarios as mm-hmm. to what could happen. And it's fascinating. <laughs> You've really, really researched all the possibilities <laughs> horrifically and admirably. Can you give us Thank an you. overview of the scenarios of the process by which you arrived at these specific five? I'll, I'll, running through them, it's the Battle of the Bridge, which would be yeah. seizure by local authorities of a bridge condemned as unsafe by federal authorities, drawing militias into armed conflict with an army. That was your first one. Well, I mean, you know, I, I imagine these scenarios because I, I want to really, you know, sometimes the theoretical concepts that underlie these political statements can be quite abstract and they feel a bit bloodless and they're the last thing from bloodless. So I really wanted to get a sense of like, OK, well, what would this actually look like? And but, you know, they are imagined. I've just tried to imagine as little as I needed to. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't need to push very far uh, to get you know, to get these kind of scenarios. So the first one is, you know, a sheriff who uh, follows the doctrine of interposition, which the the sheriff's society believes in, which is that the sheriff whose only power is less, the only power who's greater than in the county is the president, uh, essentially is entitled and and is supposed to resist the federal government and federal authority. And you know, that that's already happened multiple times in America. And essentially, uh, you, you know, I, I imagine that as a kind of larger Charlottesville, you know, where yes. where the militias who, who have the, the militias are, of course, very real in America. They're uh, they're widespread and they're there are many different forms of them. And there are also groups that, you know, I don't think you can even call as organized as the militias. So sovereign citizens and uh, anti-government patriots of various kinds, um, and they're uh, of various different prominences. And some of these are inside institutions in American life, and some of them are outside. But they're really waiting for a rallying cry, and someone is eventually going to give it to them. I don't know if it's going to be a sheriff on a bridge, which is how I imagined it, but somebody is going to give it to yeah. them. So, uh, you, you know, that, that, that I really do feel is coming. And then, of course, I also talked to uh, a colonel who was responsible for drawing up the battle plans, the military battle plans for, you know, what they call full spectrum operations in the homeland, which nice. is what happens when the U.S. military actually has to deal with a rogue county or a rogue sheriff. And it's um, it's extremely problematic. It's a, I mean, it's not problematic on a military point of view, like the U.S. Marines, the U.S. Marines, but the legal quagmire of waging war against your own citizens who are entitled to rights as citizens is extremely difficult, and um, you know, uh, and and really, really hard to uh, to navigate. And you know, the the U.S. military has been through seventy years of counterinsurgency now. And, you know, what they've learned is basically you cannot win, right? Like even when you win, you lose. And if you if you win, you lose. And if you lose, you still lose. So it's not uh, it's and and that would be much worse for a counterinsurgency in the United States uh, than it would be for counterinsurgency in in a foreign country. So, you know, that's the first scenario. Um, the second scenario is a uh, is a, 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 what would happen if a president were assassinated now in the aftermath of that. And and basically no one would half the country would be happy about it and half the country wouldn't. And, and, and that and, and that's a very you know, that that just goes to the decline of transnational institutions and the, the decline of solidarity, really. And then the third one is much more complicated about the environmental and economic and sort of deeper causes of these things, which are the cascading complex system that is the United States in collapse, really, and, and why this sort of unimaginable keeps happening. But just to go specific, your hypothetical is a Category 2 hurricane hits New York and instantly creates yeah. potentially millions of refugees and, uh, and hits our entire financial center harder than 9-11 ever could, which then would lead to your well, fourth scenario. I mean, go ahead, please. Yes. I mean, and, and, and the other thing is like, you know, 
when I was sort of going through the book at the end before it went to press, I was like, I, you know, I built it around them building the seawall. In New York is very vulnerable to hurricanes, and hurricanes are almost certainly coming. Like they are one of the most easily predicted things that are coming. Increase a number of hurricanes from the Atlantic, and you know, the research on New York is very, very substantial about what it would look like if a hurricane hit it. Like they know to That's the right. street what will be salvageable and what won't be salvageable. And, you know, like Miami's under threat, Phoenix is under threat and other towns and, you know, New Orleans is under threat. And those are great towns, but New York is New York, right? Like it's the center of the world and uh, the, the center of international exchange for like 88% of foreign exchange goes through New York city. Right. So a catastrophe that would affect New York would be truly truly catastrophic for the world and also you know it new york is extremely hard to rebuild like it's not like houston or 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 new Orleans. It, it is such a density of infrastructure basically every square kilometer is billions of dollars of infrastructure you know if that if that's rust it, it's not really going to be rebuildable so uh and, and then of course the trump administration canceled the seawall which to me is one of the like uh, of all the things that they did, one of the most upsetting. Like it's it's insane. It's an act yeah. of of, tr- of true insanity to to not have, not to protect New York City. Like, I, I guess no one gets elected for preventing a catastrophe, but it just seems to me like basic responsibility to well, like at the same time. Keep- he- he was yeah. applying for to build a seawall around his golf course in Scotland and literally yeah. invoked climate change in the in the application for the permit to do so. So it doesn't yeah. really seem like it's either just a, a, a very a rather uh, spotty madness or a grotesque hypocrisy that's purely self-serving, regardless of how many people get hurt long term. But even there are a lot of hypocrites in this world. I'm not sure they want New York City to fall. You right. Know what I mean? right. Like, yeah. Like, 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 like you're, you're making a decision that is literally going to possibly like it, 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 it's not, of course there, this is all chance, right? Like these are all, but the odds go way, way up for the destruction of, of New York city. Like this is a, this is, this is a really, really serious problem. And there's, there's only a few real solutions to it. So for him to make that decision just seemed to me like, suicidal and and, you know as an outsider watching it you just you can barely believe it it's like let me get this straight you have new york city in your country you have the greatest city of the world in your country it is a huge generator of prosperity maybe the greatest generator of prosperity in the world and you're going to risk it for nothing like out of peak at a peak, you're going to risk it. It, it, it just was, it just, you know, and of course, this is when in the book, what complex cascading systems mean is that like angry politics leads to bad decisions, which leads to catastrophic decisions, which leads to angry people, which leads to bad decisions. And that's a, a classic one. It's like, okay, they, they, he actually got to the place where they could make this decision, this, this, this poor decision that, that, you know that they I, could make. Um, you know what I think it was? I think it was yeah. literally karma punishing America for all of our jokes about Rob Ford. I really do. I think that was just, <laughs> well, I mean, he was, he, he was, uh, he just destroyed himself, man. I mean, yeah, he, he wasn't a bad, he wasn't a bad you know, guy either. He had a demon, but he wasn't no, a bad no. guy. And he, he was not a bad guy. And certainly if some expert had said to him, you know, Toronto could be in real trouble unless you do this, he would have done it. <laughs> like, you know, the, yeah. like his, like his brother is doing right now. I mean, That's right. you know, like it's, well, if, if America's getting karma, my God, it's getting a horrible amount of oh, karma. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean maybe a, bit, just... a bit over the top. I think the karma is yeah. going a bit over the top now, don't we all think? I mean, here in New York, we feel like God's punishing us for Trump every day, just so you know. But uh, you yeah, know, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress. OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm John Fugel saying this is Progress After Dark. You outline these five different scenarios, and and they're all terrifying, and they're all feasible, and so well-researched, but you note they all have one thing in common, and that is what fuels them. Let me ask, what is that fuel in those scenarios? Well, I, I mean, I think there's there's several different factors happening at the same time. Like that's the complex cascading system. You know, the the two things are re- I really think are big. So one is that the United States is entering a kind of post policy phase, particularly in the federal government, where it can basically no longer make uh, government. It, it can no longer govern. Like it, it it's no longer like the build the build back better bill to anyone in any other democracy it, like the fact that this is a big deal is just i mean that in every other mature democracy that's a wednesday that's a budget exactly. like that's not a that, that's not a that's not a substantial policy action even and of course it's t- it consuming this huge amount of energy and it, it, and this is in a time when supposedly the you know democrats control all the levers of power so you know it's so that that's that's sort of already happened i think or is really very close to happening where the, basically the constitution is not working and the the governmental system is no longer capable of imposing s- substantial policies for for the american people but then the other thing is that and this is something that happens all over the world as African Americans, as Latino Americans rise to equality, and and as America approaches being a majority minority country, the people on top hate that, resent it, yeah. and revolt against it, and it leads to violence. And the really fascinating thing is that that happens everywhere. Like that's not an, a, that's a, a particularly American pathology. It's not tied to America's unique racial history. It happens in India between Hindus and Muslims. It happens all over Africa. It happens all over the Middle East. So, you know, to me, that is the like there are a lot of components at work here. But that's the that's the big one. That's the that's the energy generating. That's the toxic energy generator, if you will. Yeah. I mean, you lay it out beautifully. There are these two visions of America. One is multi-ethnic and the other is white supremacist, a.k.a. the way things used to be. You write. Uh, hatred drives politics in the United States more than any other consideration. And really, you, you also point yeah, I out... Wouldn't, in- I wouldn't describe the other side, just to be clear, I wouldn't describe the other side necessarily as white supremacist. Like, okay. I, like I would describe them as their vision of themselves as a settler republic. I mean, like, yeah. I think it, like th- th- part of this is like, you know, every, it's very easy to see the other side in the worst terms. They certainly see you in the worst term. Terms, oh, I get it. Right? I get like it. They, you're, you're, they, I know. they see you as godless communist, and that's yeah. and, and you see them as white supremacists. They see themselves I, as people I with debate, families and who love their families and God. Right? Yeah. And, I, I, by the way, I, I debate want, the I debate the Bible with them all the time, every night. They're in my family, right. they're in my listenership. Like I know who we're talking about. I'm just saying for them, white supremacy yeah. not a deal breaker. Not a deal breaker, but that's that's true. Yeah. I just think that like one thing you have to keep in mind here is that both of these sides of this country have a positive vision. They're yeah. just in conflict. And, and, and so like when you get out of the the antipathy of trying to fuse these two sides into some unworkable whole, it's more like, well, if that's the kind of country you want to be, then you should go and be it. And we should go and be our own country. Right. Like. Uh, like we should like, and, and I mean, of course, I think abortion is going to be the, the crack here, right? Yeah. Because like, I, I think for a, a huge number of liberal Americans, that's a, a true line in the sand. And for the other side, it is too. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I think the, the brokenness here is, is also about like just people who have different, you know, different perspective. Like, like they're, they're just genuinely different people. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, again, I, I don't I don't think that they are malevolent in their intent. I just think certain things 
aren't deal breakers. But, you know, I, mm-hmm. I have plenty of annoying liberals I can introduce you to as well. But when we began, you talked about the breakup of a marriage. And, and I like that metaphor. Yeah. Um, but there's this other factor in, in play, which is uh, with the breakup of any marriage, a lot of marriages stay together because of financial interdependence. We're yeah, not in a place. Yeah, we're not in a place where uh, red states will secede from the union because, generally speaking, uh, for the most part, the red states are receiving more money from the federal government than they put in, as opposed to states like New York or California. We're not really talking, though, in terms of civil war about organized secession becoming two separate countries, are we? If and if so, could that financial interdependence be the thing that keeps us all in this marriage? Well. So secession is getting more and more popular all the time. It's I think it's now at 53 percent for Trump voting Republicans. And in California, it's at 41 percent of Democrats. You know, you, what you say is absolutely true about finance. Like South Carolina takes seven dollars for every dollar it gives to the federal government. New York and, and in particular, Massachusetts get they're, they're just extraction engines and also Texas. Um, like they, 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 they have a lot of money taken out of them for the federal government. Um, but I, I don't think like the reason that secession is so difficult, the financial questions are certainly problematic, but the real problems are that the U S constitution makes it very difficult because of article 14. So it doesn't have like Canada where we've nearly broken up twice we have laws in place to sort of handle secession, like what it would look like <laughs> and, and how it would work because yeah. we've come very close, right? We came, we came like 1% when I was within 1% of the, uh, of the population voting that way in 1995. So we have, That's we right. have some kind of structure for that. America doesn't have any structure for secession. And then the, and then the other question is d- dealing with the UN, which is really, really tricky. Like to secede, you need to have the support of, uh, the, the Security Council and you need to have the support of the home state to allow it, you know, the, and that makes that makes things. Very, and, you know, th- this idea like the Ted Cruz's of the world saying, like, we're going to take NATO and so on. It's, we're going to sorry, we're going to take uh, NASA and so on. Like, no, no, no. Like, it's it's all very well and good to talk that way. But like, you know, it's it, you need the U.N. to be able to land a plane in your country and you need the mm-hmm. U.N. to be able to have Internet protocols and you need the, to for international foreign exchange so all of those problems are hugely complicating of secession and quite thorny like quite thorny legal problems i personally feel like secession is something that one of the better case scenarios for how this could end uh like it it just seems to me like as i said you know when your marriage has reached this point you just you just break up (laughs) like you just you like they they you just can't stand to live with each other I know uh, what happens to the third person who's the apathetic one in the relationship, of course, because there's, right, no, more, yeah. there's no more middle. That's one thing I got from your book. There there really is no more middle uh, here. If you're just joining Very us, I'm little. talking to Stephen March, whose uh, new book is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future, uh, a very gripping and scary, but rather hopeful book. And I, I got to tell you, I'm dazzled by the amount of research and data collection you did, um, the models you use, and the almost 200 interviews with Civil War scholars, military leaders, law enforcement, Secret Service, agricultural uh, specialists. And of course, you talked with, as you mentioned, counterinsurgency experts about what it would take to control the population of the U.S. And the battle yeah. plans for the next Civil War have already been drawn up. And not by novelists, yeah, as you have. point out, but by colonels. Yeah, I, I mean... Like, I mean, when I bring that up, some people are like, well, that's why are they planning it? And it's like, well, the U.S. military has battle plans for everything. Right. I mean, they have battle plans for invading Canada. Right. They, they have. <laughs> so, they, have, you know, like they have they have battle plans for for <laughs> for, for literally every every possible eventuality. Right. Yeah. And which makes sense. But, you know, this is incredible. Increasingly, you know, they they have had to deal with these situations before in uh, Arkansas in the 50s, in L.A. in the in the during the riots where they were used calling in the military to deal with civilian forces. This is a very, very thorny legal problem. A series of presidential uh, executive orders have made matters probably more complicated than they would have been otherwise. But, you know, they, they certainly didn't solve anything. And, yeah, it's. um it's a very intractable problem. I mean, counterinsurgency, there are differences of opinion. I talked to a bunch of different uh, lieutenant generals and, uh, and and people who are 
involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. And basically, it, it you know, it's not it's not a winnable situation because you can't if you win, you still lose. And if you lose, you still lose. But also by doing what you do, by clamping down on the violence, you, you kind of just increase the amount of violence. And I mean, that's yes. what. You know, the, the example they brought up, of course, was the the, the, the last American occupation, which was the re, which was Reconstruction, right, which That's was right. The, the occupation of the South, which led to the birth of a series of terrorist movements, Ku Klux Klan, uh, Red Guards and so on, Red, Red Shirts and so on. And they, you know, they they basically lost. Like eventually, after 10 years, the North just got exhausted. They could not kill every Southerner who came up against them. And in effect, in effect they gave them home rule. And. Uh, that that kind of radical decentralization may may well be underway as well. But the the point is, like they tried to occupy the South after a long and brutal war, and it really didn't. It really wasn't possible. It really yeah. it really didn't. Ha- it really couldn't happen. So, I, an American occupation today would be every bit as impossible. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean more so. There's 400 million guns in America. So you know, oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> 88 per person. I mean, you, you don't present a problem without also proposing a solution, though. And, and it really seems like if our republic is poised to fall, allowing the South to break away into, you know, potentially a, a largely impoverished theocracy or California and Texas getting their own nationhood might be the most nonviolent way to do it. How would this diminish America and what would be the hopeful elements of it? I mean, what would be well, obviously, the positive side? Would we still hate each other as would, neighbors? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think you might not hate each other quite as much. I mean, but also I think like, you know, imagine. So imagine a New York state where you had Medicare and where you had real gun control and you had, you know, all the sensible things, policies that every other industrialized country in the world has managed for itself. Right. Yeah. If you had parental leave like every other country in the world has right if you had free medicine like you could yeah. have that if you were your own country like you want it you know you you could get it like it's not a question of the money like you you, you know you would you'd have it's just a question of the political will to do it and, and having a political system that could respond to your actual desires as a people and mm. you know similarly for them like they feel trapped like they feel absolutely trapped by the United States. Like they, they legitimately do. They, they yeah. feel like they've had abortion shoved down their throats. Right. Mm-hmm. And so wouldn't it be better for them to be able to do what they what they want with their their political entities? And, and for you, like, surely that would be hugely, you know, you would lose power, but maybe you might become more yourselves. Right. And, and like and, and become more the people and, and the and the and the states that you want to be, uh, yeah. you, you know, like if California were its own country, it would have the highest medium income in the world by about twenty five thousand dollars oh, yeah. a year. Like it, like it, it would be the richest country in the world in in five minutes. And, 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 and you know, Texas also could flourish quite well. I mean, the South and the Midwest would would have I mean, they would still be as productive as Germany and Mexico combined. Like they would not be a poor country. But um, and certainly certainly the Northeast, like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, like Chicago, these these megalopolises of huge productivity would be it would would still be immensely powerful. But at some point, you have to ask yourself, how much is this country preventing you from being the from having the politics that you want? You know, no, it's like, true. It's fascinating. I mean, we we right now we're watching, you know, two senators uh, control the entire country. And as you put in the book, disunion would be the death of one country, but it would be the birth of four others. And I can't wait to have the modern Confederacy come to us for foreign aid. But, you know, <laughs> as someone who was raised in, in the north and the south, I, I, I totally I get where you're going with it, yeah. and it may be inevitable. If it does happen, I hope it's nonviolent. But I, I want to end by just asking, in our final moments, what gives you hope for your neighbors to the south? Well, you know, Americans are a unique people. Like they are, uh, they, they are capable of reinvention and in it to a shocking degree. And they're also, you know, they do have this frankness about them, about the about the way that they talk and about the way that they act. That is, I find so admirable and, and, and which, you know, 
if any country can get to a politics based on practical realism about people, what people actually, how people actually want to live, it would be Americans because they've done it before. You know, they've reinvented themselves. It is the country of reinvention. And so what gives me hope is actually the Americans themselves. But, you know, that's, you know, the hope I don't have is that things are just going to work themselves out. Right. Yeah, like that's not that's not that's not what's going to happen here. Like it, it's not just going to be like, oh, five years from now, it'll all seem like a bad dream. That That's not that's not what's going to happen. It's going to take a conscious act of reinvention. But who better than Americans to do that? They are they are the people who could do. They are exactly the, the people, maybe the one people on Earth who could do it. That's my hope. Stephen March, new book is The Next Civil War Dispatches from the American Future. It is gripping reading like all your stuff, but this is just a, a dynamite, fascinating work that made me study the debate in so many new ways. Thank you so much for joining us on SiriusXM. Please come back anytime. Really great to talk to you.